love your cushions. Yes. Have you seen them before? So it's Preston Bus Station, Centre Point, MI5 Building, and the Utrecht Pump Station, but I don't get that one. That's the National Library of Argentina by Clorinda Teste. <laughs> wow. They're all Adam and Nathaniel Furman. Are they all Adams? Yeah. Oh, great. I recognise um, the POMO ones, yes. but not the... They're all British except that, but Adam's got Argentinian heritage. So there we go. Good day to you, super urbanists. I am Tim Abrahams. Today, I have invited myself into the home of one of the UK's most enduring and insightful writers on architecture, Rowan Moore. Now, Rowan, being a gentleman, has allowed me in, largely, I think, because the subject I wish to talk to him about is most germane. Do not let the cushion talk distract you. I want to talk to him about property, but this is not because Rowan is recently married and has just moved into a new house but because he has published a book on the subject, a history of how we think about property, perhaps. And with only months to go to the next election, and with the issue of housing hopefully being at the top of the agenda, Rowan's book is a timely intervention. There is, however, much to unpack in it and a lot to interrogate him about. I'm Rowan Moore, architectural critic of The Observer and author of Property, The Myth, The Build, The World that has recently been published by Faber. My previous books were Why We Build, which was about the non-functional reasons why people build things. And my second book was called Slowburn City, which is about London in the 21st century, but also referring back to its past to some degree. There's been evolution in those three titles, which is away from being purely about architecture progressively. Because when I'm writing about architecture, I so often find there's a story behind the building, which very often is to do with property and who owns it and why they own it and what all the different factors are relating to ownership that quite often predetermine what the architecture is going to be to a very large degree. So although I continue to love architecture in itself and to be fascinated by it, I'm also interested in what lies behind it. And so my second book about London was still quite architectural, but obviously when you're talking about a city, you have to also have to look at a lot of the forces behind it and not just the facades on the streets. Was there a particular moment when that coalesced into the idea, like, actually, I need to take this forward? And I think that's always been a feature of my writing about architecture right back to the very beginning. So it wasn't a light bulb moment, but I crystallised somehow. The other driving force behind this book is I've lived my entire adult life in what Margaret Thatcher called the property owning democracy. The first election I could vote in was the one that brought her to power. It shows you how old I am. And so I've lived all the way through it and <coughs> experienced the ideas that she promoted that ownership is great and everyone should own and, and I do own it and I have personally, as I say in the book, done well out of it event eventually after some struggles. And then progressively it's become clearer and clearer that it's not delivering all the promises it should. And we now have what's commonly called a housing crisis. So I'm interested in how we went from this great dream of property ownership to a situation where it's become one of the biggest problems facing the country. Now, that's a very interesting moment that you've alighted upon. People asked me when I was reading your book, oh, what, what's the book about? I was asked and 
three or four times or by the end I could reduce it down to something quite pure and I said it's a history of our understanding of property it's interesting for me that you've picked out that moment as a a significant one Thatcher's election and the idea of the property owning democracy because there's a a series of pivotal moments when the idea of property um, coalesces. As you say, it's not just about the present because I wanted to give it a wider span both in time and space. So it's not just about Britain and it's not just about the current decades. So I do go back in the past and I'm looking at where the modern idea of private property came from. So there's a particular moment that interests me, which is 1649 or thereabouts, which is at the end of the English Civil War, the king has been defeated and executed. All sorts of things seem possible. There's a turmoil of ideas. And you have the levellers and the diggers, who are two groups of dissidents, troublemakers. They're seen as both almost equally threatening by the establishment. And even after the king has been deposed and executed, Oliver Cromwell is very much trying to hold up a different status quo. And as far as he's concerned, they're both equally troublesome. But they actually express ideas that almost framed the opposition of discussion about property ever since, in that the levellers were about private ownership and the diggers were about communal ownership. And the the levellers championed the right of individuals to own. And they said that owning land is almost like a piece of your body. It's almost like a limb. Because if you work the land, your body goes into the land and contributes to it. And what grows out of it is an extension of your body. So they were basically championing the rights of small holders, of small landowners, against royalty, against aristocrats and large landed estates. And the diggers said land should all be held in common and it was a corruption of God's idenic ideal that anyone should own anything and they both got suppressed but the levelers ideas pop up again in John Locke a few decades later who also has this idea that your property is an extension of your body and if you come to own it through work and if you've done that then you deserve to have it and it shouldn't be removed from you because it was like an amputation to take it from you and John Locke also said property is natural so he gives property this elevated status that is given by God, which lays the foundations for the Anglo-Saxon model of ownership over the next few centuries, and especially laid the foundation for the establishment of the United States through its constitution, and then also through the Public Land Survey, the expansion of the United States across the continent of North America. The Public Land Survey was instituted shortly after the constitution was published, and it was the idea that the whole continent should be gridded up with lines that denoted property ownership, even before that land had been taken or appropriated. And that historical transition is, I'm very glad you raised it because it's a key one. It strikes me that here is the fundamental period when we're thinking about property. You mentioned Locke's idea that property was natural. So Locke tells a story about a man wandering in the wilderness in an Edenic state, somebody a bit like Adam, and he picks up an apple and he eats it. And Locke says, at what point does that apple become his? Because by the time it's in his body, it's clearly his and you can't take it out again. And Locke says he... The, the apple became his through his labour of finding it and picking it up. And therefore, by extension, if you cultivate land, grow things, harvest the produce, cook the produce, then it becomes yours through a natural process. And I'm having some difficulty defending this because it's not a definition of natural that I would precisely have myself. But it does it appeals to a natural state of mankind before civilization started. 
and also it was quite convincing at the time even though we may not fully identify with it it, yeah it's illuminating to know that was very persuasive because Locke's ideas go on to be influential the idea Mm. of property being somehow a a natural state is very influential on the enlightenment philosophers Mm. Hume suggests that there's plenty and the poets know more than the philosophers because if we lived in this idyllic idyllic state yeah. as you describe it there's enough property for all and interestingly adam smith adapts it to the degree to which he says that there is sufficiency but it actually behoves society to pretend that there isn't mm-hmm. in the fact that by self-betterment we can attain status mm-hmm. and actually the struggle for attainment of status is yeah. something of benefit so we begin to trace the revolutionary nature of this idea because it spreads out throughout human history and i thought it was very interesting that you chose the american one because immediately you have this idea that by creating this relationship between the body and and the land that you therefore have this justification for what Mm. is an imperial endeavor really yeah and by the way important point to make in passing is when people like Locke are talking about property they're talking about agricultural land nowadays we tend to be talking about building land that's just an important point to notice so Locke made this argument about the naturalness of property and he did think about what you do about greed what you do about people acquiring too much and that troubled him because he was coming from a protestant work ethic position that it's not about massive accumulation it's about acquiring what you need for yourself and no more and he did worry about what would happen if there wasn't enough to go around but he said thanks to the existence of america which he'd had some practical involvement with although he hadn't actually been there he said that's okay there's still limitless land america is so big we will never run out of land which of course raised the question of what happened to the people who were already there who were in fact occupying the land and also proved not to be true because eventually the North American continent was occupied and divided up and so on. Then this argument about how it's a reward for hard work is then used against the native population of North America. So he says they basically don't use the land efficiently because they don't cultivate it or they did to some degree but not at the scale that the colonizers did. So then he said the ability of Europeans to get more yield from the land just justifies their appropriation of it so long as there's enough left over for the native population which is a formulation that can gets repeated again and again in the 18th and 19th century as well we're entitled to take this land and make it more productive so long as there's enough left over for the native people but somehow there wasn't or they end up in reservations so we're looking here very much at the negative consequences of the early enlightenment Mm. one of the other aspects is that Locke's formulation and the way in which Hume and Smith take it forward is that property challenges birthright. If you have property, you can vote. How does that influence the way in which the institutions of the modern Um, state... It's an incredibly powerful and productive idea. So the Industrial Revolution could probably not have happened without the institution of this idea of property because it protects the right of landowners against arbitrary imposition by monarchs, for example, which gives people the security to invest in land, to invest in a coal mine or a mill, or a lot of the early Industrial Revolution was carried out actually by aristocratic landowners because they had the security of tenure to do that. And then the idea, obviously, in the United States built this very powerful and rich country. And it does protect rights of property owners, who, after all, is a large 
number of people, if not just large landowners. So my book is not saying everything about property is bad. That would be very hypocritical of me, and I don't believe it. But it's really just to point out the different aspects of it, and ultimately to ask how can its promises be better fulfilled? Because its promise is that it makes you rich and happy and free as an individual and does the same thing for societies. And quite often it does, but I also point out the ways in which it doesn't. So I really explore the ways in which it has and hasn't worked and how it might work better in the future. And conceptually, I would say that the important thing is to get away from this idea that it's natural and given by God, rather than that it's a very useful instrument, a very effective economic and political tool, but it's not inevitably the only one you can use. I call it a a convenient fiction. I have the the question there, what is property? And and you've answered it. It's Mm. a convenient fiction by which we organise land spatially. Which is also not universal. So you have societies in the world which believe you can own land, that God owns land. Such as? Nomadic societies, feudal societies. And then you have all sorts of shades and different definitions and descriptions of property in different places and different ways of holding land that give you different rights and responsibilities and restrictions, which quite often are just geographically based. If you're a nomadic people, you just use land in a different way. You're not going to draw lines around it and build fences because that's a nonsense. So it's basically a practical issue, really, not a theological or philosophical one. You highlighted earlier that what Locke's talking about is an agricultural understanding of property and what we move to in the Industrial Revolution, not exclusively, but more more commonly a domestic or a industrial or a urbanised idea of property. How does our concept of what property is change at that time? I think we've now arrived in a situation where in a country like Britain, most people live in cities, most people are removed from the production of food. It's not at the part of their daily experience and their forefront of their concerns. Of course, it is still important who owns agricultural land. It's just not at the forefront of most people's everyday experience, whereas ownership of a home or your non-ownership of a home is very much in the middle of your life. And I don't think you or I are the people to split hairs on what Mark said when because that's obviously (laughs) it's a dangerous road to go down but you quote Marx and Engels call for abolition of property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes interestingly that's in the communist manifesto isn't it yeah later there's always a later Marx also says communism is the positive expression of annulled private property at first as universal private property there is there, I think, an interesting counter story in which he suggests a mm. universal ownership yes. can only be provided or can only be acceded to voluntarily once everyone's got their own bit to simultaneously give up. That's how yeah. I understand it. Well, I don't know if you could shed any light um, on that. As you say, this is dangerous and complicated territory. But he wasn't exactly anti-property. He just thought it should belong to the proletariat and not to private individuals. He also distanced himself from a diggers, understanding. Yes, and he also distanced himself from Proudhon, who was, crudely speaking, an heir to the diggers, who did believe in small-scale communal use of land, not ownership. So Marx wasn't an anarchist. He didn't believe that everyone should sort of do their own thing. He believed it had to be organised at a state level. Yeah. Yeah. Through the book, as you've intended, one begins to question the idea of property and its sacred status. Why do that? If you don't mind me asking a, a, a blunt question, but I think it's very interesting. 
Because I think that elevated status given to private property has got us to a situation that's causing quite obvious problems. In the case of Britain and a few other places, it's caused an inequality of of wealth in property that has become a very dominating economic and social feature. You know, we in Britain or in significant parts of Britain, we're now in the situation where there's just a huge difference in people's wealth, life prospects, security, based on luck more than anything else. It's partly age-based. If you're old enough and you had the means to invest in property 30 years ago, you're going to be doing a lot better than someone who's a bit younger. That then perpetuates to the next generation. So you can have two people who are equally talented, equally hardworking, etc., but they have very different lives based on their luck in this property market, essentially. And that doesn't seem right. And we have a situation where people's life decisions, their life chances are very severely impacted by their ownership or lack of ownership. And that just seems really hard to justify. And then you could also say it manifests in issues of climate because the philosophy of private property doesn't have a lot to say about the impacts of what you do on your land on everyone else who's not on your land. Pollution is a good example of that. And then climate change is as worldwide manifestation of that problem. Yeah, so I'm saying here's this powerful idea that is also producing quite serious problems. So can we look at the idea and see where those problems come from and also see what might be done about it? And then I also look at the line of thinking that says you never entitled something yourself. Henry George was a famous protagonist of that theory. So he said, as have other people, that if you own land, its value doesn't just come from what you do. It comes from, has someone built a railway line nearby? What are your neighbours doing? Are there other businesses in the locality that contribute to the well-being or otherwise of that place? To quote Marx again, he said, an isolated individual could no more have property in land and soil than he could speak. So in other words, owning land is an intrinsically social and enmeshed activity. It's not something that that can exist in isolation. And from that, in the case of Henry George, came the idea that the property is social and that in his case, you can tax this in ways that return its wealth to society. Henry George is advocating a a property tax. He, he, yes, he advocates a land value tax which he said would, if you had that tax and nothing else, you wouldn't need any other taxation. And it was a taxation on the element of of profit in land. So you can own land, but the speculative profit of it gets taken away from you. So as soon as the land increases in value, because for instance, a new railway line opens and a new railway station is near you, the, your property rate is raised in price. The state, yeah. And you therefore pay a higher rate of yeah. property tax. Yeah. So land value tax has been a bit of an obsession of sometimes slightly cranky political groups for quite a long time. It's never quite happened. Are you talking about the Liberal Democrats here? <laughs> Possibly. But for one reason or another, it hasn't quite happened ever in the way he envisaged. But the principles are actually built into the British planning system to some degree. And so when the Labour government came to power in 1945, they brought in the Town and Country Planning Act. They nationalised the development value of land. So they said you can own land, the 
development value belongs to the state. That really comes from Henry George, ultimately. Can you help us understand what development value means? That's the value that comes when you have the right to build something on it. So when you get planning permission, basically. So the philosophy behind the Town and Country Planning Act was that development value belongs to the government. When you get planning permission for something, the government is giving you that value. And that's then the basis through which things like planning game can happen. So it is happening in a somewhat rickety way, but it is actually built into the planning system, these ideas that go back to Henry George. The planning permission increases value of land and some of that value should be returned to the state. Either through planning gain or through potentially some other form of taxation system. One of the other things the Labour government in 1945 did was institute the programme of new towns, which were in turn based on Ebenezer Howard and the Garden City. And Ebenezer Howard was very explicitly influenced by Henry George, so there's a lineage there. In fact... it just interject just so we've got this the, one of the interesting aspects and one of the most neglected aspects of the Garden City movement is that a trust is at the centre of it from which any value which increases as a city develops and land values increase yes generally. exactly so the bit that the bit that people most remember about the Garden City is the idea of the Garden gardens. City the <laughs> gardens and the city yeah that it's houses and work and green stuff altogether. But I think possibly more than half the book is actually about the financing of it, or a very significant part of of Howard's book is about how do you finance it. And the idea was that it would be held in trust and that, so a piece of land is designated, investment is made in that land, that increases the value, that generates profit that Howard called the unearned increment, and that profit should be recycled back into the trust to build public amenities and maintain public amenities and that's essentially the philosophy behind the new towns so you had development corporations who acquired land and granted itself planning permission invested in infrastructure raised the values generated profits which can then be recycled for the public benefit which is in fact what happened and It's a bit disputed exactly what the figures are, but it's sometimes said that the entire Newtowns programme ultimately didn't cost the Treasury anything. That might be a slight exaggeration, but it was certainly a pretty effective way of funding a very ambitious and effective programme. To be devil's advocate, not quite devil's advocate, to offer a counter case, wouldn't it be better, rather than questioning property, wouldn't it be better if we just secured property for everybody? Tell me more. (laughs) It's a Um, weak manifesto (laughs) to stand for election. But let's go back to one of the pivots that Mm. you've lighted upon for the book, which was to go back to 1979 Mm. and the election of Thatcher. And you talk about the property-owning and property-owning democracy. Uh, One of the the really touching episodes and really revealing episodes in the book is where you discuss the what happened to one of the individuals Mm. who was the first first bought their own home. A thought experiment. What would have been the implications if every single sale that was made under that scheme, every single bit of profit went into building more homes? That was one of the main problems with that scheme because right to buy was good in some ways. On the whole, people prefer to own their own home if they can. It's not right for everyone, but it's pretty clear that's 
pretty widespread aspiration. I think it's particularly true in the UK because the alternative models are not very attractive. I think there's a basic appeal about owning your own home that should be respected. It's not right for everyone, but it's certainly good to make it more widely available. And it's also true that there were quite negative aspects to the situation when Margaret Thatcher came to power, which is you had very widespread council ownership, which did put immense power in the hands of local authority housing departments, who are not always the greatest custodians of that power. And it did limit people's freedoms in some ways. <clears throat> so the idea of expanding ownership was not a bad one in itself. The problem was that replacements weren't built, neither at the level of social housing nor at the larger scale. There was a double loss in many regards. Two, two things have gone wrong, I would say, between the early 80s and now. One is that the supply of social housing has diminished in quality and quantity. And the other is in the private sector, house prices have have gone up to an insane degree and those are two different but related things. The first one problem was caused by the failure to replace at an appropriate rate. The second has been caused by both by a failure to keep up with demand and also a continuous incentivization of home ownership by successive governments and actually seeing house price inflation as a good thing which has ultimately got us in the situation we're in now which yeah it seems to me utterly insane that condition the idea of house price inflation being good i say in the book it's a weird wealth that means so little in practical terms to those who have it and so much to those who don't because as you say if you do and you can say gosh it's amazing my house is worth this much but you can't use that wealth except by getting off the property escalator except by dying and giving it to your kids it is a, a, a nonsensical situation you mentioned I don't know whether I want to go back to my manifesto of houses for everybody, yeah. but thinking through the idea of the book, tell me why, and in particular, ways why my idea is ludicrous. I didn't actually say it was ludicrous. We could mention Hernando de Soto, who's the Peruvian economist and former presidential candidate, who had this idea you could give title and land to people in informal settlements. So he said, if you have people squatting on land living in favelas, you give them the title to their land and that will unleash a huge amount of wealth and it will give them the freedom to start businesses, they can use their land as collateral, etc. And he's been quite influential and it has been implemented sometimes, sometimes it's been implemented successfully. The places in which it has not been implemented successfully have been when people have got tied on their land, it's worth extraordinarily little, they're still very poor, they're very vulnerable to people coming along and saying, oh, I'll buy your bit of land off you, and then saying it to all their neighbours, and then amassing land, and then turfing them out, which has also happened. I guess the idea of everyone owning is attractive. I don't think it's ever going to happen. And I think quite a lot of people are always going to want to rent because it just suits them. Absolutely. That's probably where I would depart from you. But I think it's always going to be a dynamic situation and you're always going to have appropriation and winners and losers. And you're always going to have people using barely legal terms to barely legal means to achieve their ends. So there's just going to be a pushing and a pulling forever in which I think the state always has to play some role of redressing the balance from time to time and protecting weaker people.
So I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's an unending story. There's never going to be a, an arrival point at a perfect destination. I'm not proposing any, any ultimate solution because I don't think there is one. But I think you know, in the pushing and pulling that needs to go on at the particular time we're in now, the pushing has to be more against the idea of the sacrosanct nature of private property than the opposite. If I'd been writing this in 1979, maybe I would have been a bit more Thatcherite because maybe the more evident problem at that point was the overreach of public ownership. The main problem with that programme is that there wasn't a like for like. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not building yeah. anymore. The idea it's only a valid exercise if it extends outwards. Ultimately, what's important, obviously, is the quality of the homes that people have. Do you have a home, full stop? Do you have a home that allows you to live your life as you would like to leave it, that has basic qualities of comfort and safety and health and the ability to give it your own identity? That's what's fundamentally important. This is a place where you can get on with your neighbours and you've got all the services you want. Those things are obviously what is most important, not the title of the property. The title of the property is a means to those ends. I would agree with you in an absolute sense, but if you speak to anybody in their 30s at the moment, they would say, I'll just take anything, please. That's the desperate state we are in. Yeah. So the idea that you might, in finding a home, be looking for something that reflected your dreams, your personality, your lifestyle, whatever, that's got severely atrophied. Because, yeah, people go, I'll just grab what I can first step on the ladder and then you realise that's the ladder. Yeah, that is the ladder. A ladder with one rung. Yeah. That's a very serious problem. And in the book I talk about how Britain used to be famous for the ideal of a house with a little garden that most people could aspire to. Mm -hmm. And that was seen as a very civilised thing. And in London at any rate and much of the South East and certain other cities it's gone. that's gone. I mean how many houses with gardens get built in London now? There is if I was working for the Centre for Cities, for example, mm -hmm. I would say what you need to do is reform planning, law, let's build more and that will sort things. I'm very hostile to the idea that it's purely a question of supply and demand. And that if you just release your constraints and allow house builders to build whatever they want, wherever they want, everything will be solved because we're never not going to have planning. People like planning. Planning is actually a very popular thing when it comes to protecting where you live. Again, undesirable development. I think it's right. Land is a scarce resource. I think it's right that is protected and governed by rules to some degree. If you have planning, you therefore have, you will always have some restriction on supply. Added to which, it's been very clearly shown that house builders will never build in the quantities where they lower the value of their product. So there's a concept called absorption, which is house builders will only build at the rate at which the market can absorb their product. Just to, to this, is, this is the argument, say, from the House Builders Federation, what we need is an agreed local plan mm. where there are areas of development. It's mm. set out. Everyone knows where it is. That means that small house builders mm. can build a number of homes mm. to their limit, mm. nine, ten. This then becomes an insurgent to the monopoly of the larger house builders. And that one of the issues is the way absorption actually works is because of a monopoly situation, yeah. that they yeah. can control it. Whereas if you have a situation where everyone's agreed, where everyone can build, then smaller house builders can pick yeah. up the slack. And there's some, we absorption is a function of monopoly. Is there, is, there a, is there something to be said 
for reforming planning law so we don't have the situation where monopoly thrives, uh, i.e. the only people that can keep building are volume house builders because they can mm. see out any protests yeah. on a local level because you don't really have... And they can invest in the expense of planning. Of pu- expense of planning, the expense of publicity, the expense yeah. of just sitting it. Yeah, I certainly think that clarity in the planning system is a good thing. Yeah, if you can say this is the land that's available, these are the constraints on building on it, those are the rules, no more discussion, that's attractive. I, in principle, agree with that. In practice, it seems extraordinarily hard to achieve. But I also think that's not going to be enough on its own. I really don't see an alternative to a more proactive role by government. Learning a bit from the Atlee government and from Newtown's movement, which certainly cannot be done in the same way again, partly because it's heavily dependent on compulsory purchase, which is a very contentious instrument. A little while ago, I said, if you can build high-speed railway lines, you can build new towns. But, of course, we now discovered you can't build high-speed railway lines. You can in Morocco, you can in Thailand, but apparently not in the United Kingdom. Uh, But if you take the attitude that that housing is infrastructure, which to some degree it is, if you take it as seriously as roads and airports and railway lines are taken, you might be getting somewhere. I think we should just compulsory purchase something, even if we've got no intention of building on it, just to put the frighteners on people. (laughs) Something that's changed in a way that should be advantageous since the 1940s is the value of land, which means that the unearned increment is much, much bigger. Ebenezer Howard had no concept of the sort of 20, 30-fold, whatever it is, increase in value that comes when you get permission to convert agricultural land to building land. So there's actually wealth that he could not conceive of. So in principle, if you, know, you look at the green belt, you look at the incredible value locked up in it, there really should be a way of developing a very small proportion of that land in a way that is beneficial to everyone. But I wouldn't pretend I've got all the answers to how to do it, but the principle is there. From what you're saying, you would look at the the ideas of how to hold value in trust, yeah. as expressed by Howard in the Garden City movement. There's a lot of garden cities around the Green Belt. You don't really have to go too far to see the example, do yeah. you? It's interesting that at the beginning of our discussion, you described the idea of moving further away from architecture throughout, throughout your writing. But obviously, what you're writing has huge implication for architects. What messages do you think should architects take from the book? And we're coming up to an election. Yeah. What should the general public, as perhaps two different people, what, what do you think we should be advocating for, asking for? from well, I think architects have got a really important role to play, potentially, because if you are talking about new housing on the green belt or adaptively reusing existing buildings design is a huge part of that you can do it well or badly and it can make a huge difference to the outcomes how it's designed and so part of the problem is that if you say to people oh some (coughs) some new housing might come to your locality they know immediately what that means which is the developer's standard product and they don't like it quite reasonably but if it was possible to convince people that actually it could be better than that and by which i'm not so much talking about the look of the houses as how are things planned so that public benefits are actually created to existing homeowners as well as the new ones the high level principle here is that you have an enormous amount of wealth you release that wealth it should be possible to do that in a way that is beneficial to almost everyone but it's very hard to say to people this is what happened here because the the examples don't exist all that much It's a vicious circle we've got ourselves into, isn't it? Yeah, so there's a lack of trust. 
But that's partly a question of design. And we're in a situation where architects are some very marginalised now and frustrated in general, but there's actually an opportunity. There is, there's a very important thing where they could play a role. And this is beyond the scope of this particular book, but maybe some architects should get together and say, this is how you could do it. And we, so the situation we, we, we have now, we have Create Streets, who are saying, look at Poundbury. Poundbury is new housing that has some public facilities, some public aspects to it. It has got this architecture that is said to be beautiful. But that somehow they've, they've made all the running with this and you would have thought architects could push back or make their own contribution. And there's a space that creates streets of occupy because no, no one else is. So maybe some architects should rise up and fill that space. And propose the new town of... Or pr- propose some models, yeah. I think that's a... It's an excellent point to end on. And there's yeah. probably questions I haven't a- asked, but that's one of the things I've learned during making these things is, is if there's a lovely point to end on, then end on it. Okay. Thank you so much to Rowan. It's amazing because although I do disagree with some of what he focuses on in his book, and my review of it for The Critic, which will be published in their next issue, takes it to task in a way... I applaud its necessity and, through discussion of its implications, find something profound to agree with him on. I think the conclusion we arrived at in our conversation here, Rowan and I, is one which I emphatically do agree with. Like Rowan, I stand outside architecture, but I have found myself in moments thinking exactly as he has done here. Come on, architects, let's see it. Anyway, this was Super Urbanism. A Machine Books podcast. My name is Tim Abrahams. Having listened this far, you are now morally bound to like, subscribe, forward, tell all your friends about how great it is. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.